Hey folks, this is Faye. Just wanted to say here before the start of the episode, I'm sorry that this episode has come out a fair bit late. It's been almost six weeks. We were planning for it to come out three or four weeks ago. It's been a bit hectic. I had a wedding to go to. There was some organizing stuff. There's, you know, they've been doing a lot of maintenance on my apartment, which has made it difficult to record. But we did uh, sit down and we did hammer this episode out. So moving forward, we're going to try to stick to a, at minimum, a monthly schedule. If possible, I'd like to do bi-weekly. We would just want to get this content out there a little bit more regularly. So again, sorry for the delay. And uh, with that said, welcome to season two of the SRA podcast. Hello and welcome to season two of the Socialist Rifle Association podcast. This is your host, Bang. Today I'm joined by our new co-host, Austin. How do you, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. Uh, hello everybody, I'm Austin. I'm a new member of the SRA, and I'd like to see a SRA card in every working class wallet in America. Sounds like a good goal. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll probably notice that things are a little bit different. We're trying out a new format. If you listen to episode 20, you'd have heard that Alex Humva, our previous host, is stepping down to pursue his own creative projects uh, separate from the SRA. Um, of course, he'll still be uh, the president of the SRA and he'll continue his valuable organizing work there, but he just wanted to take his podcasting in a more personal direction without it being necessarily tied to the organization. So moving forward, I'd like to keep things a little bit more topical and related to guns and uh, to the armed left in general. So in addition to news, we'll also be bringing you um, things like gun Q&As, legislative updates, and we'll also be reaching out to do more interviews with various leftists and uh, various organizations. So with all that said, let's take a dive into the latest news cycle. What's in the news, Austin? Well... If you uh, if you literally Google news because your uh, your Facebook feed is uh, is anything like mine and it's mostly just you know calls for revolution and not necessarily any news stories, uh, you'll find that basically every all of the top stories are related to Trump and you know the liberal investigation into Trump and everything. And I guess this just kind of struck me because like I feel like this represents um, such a such a painful point for me over over the last year that um that liberals are so incredibly focused on on trump and like can you believe he said this can you believe he said this like can you like can who would even say something like that huh i wonder who maybe the person who's been saying it for like almost three years now yeah and i guess part of the reason why this is so frustrating is because it feels like such a fruitless frustrating discussion to have that this is exactly the same discussion that people were having back in 2016 when the general liberal consensus was no 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 like he, he would never get elected this would never happen this couldn't possibly happen and they they literally don't understand that all press is good press when it comes to viewpoints like this and it's so frustrating because he says the same things that everyone hates over and over again and yet there's no call to action about it it's just the only call to action from so many of these news stories is just to shake your head and be like Oh man, I can't, I can't believe that that happened. Yeah, there's so much obsession with the uh, Mueller investigation. I mean, I'm sure most of the people listening to this are obviously sick of that already, but I, I tune into it every now and then, and people are still talking about the exact same threads of that storyline as they were in 2016. Like uh, the Alpha Bank 
connection of DNS requests between uh, a tr- server and Trump Tower and a it, it's the same exact things that people have been talking about for literally two and a half, three years, and there's been no consequences. I mean, obviously, a couple of people have gone to jail. Manafort is in trouble and various other figures associated with the campaign. But so many liberals seem to have this unshakable faith that Weller will step in and save them. All they have to do is just, you know, just wait for the FBI to do its job and let Weller build his case. If Mueller had a good case for for collusion to bring against Trump, I think that he would have presented it already. Because if all these facts, which obviously point to an inappropriate relationship, if all of these facts that are known publicly amounted to criminal charges, then I don't see any reason why it wouldn't have been brought to bear already. This is the sort of thing where it's not even really news so much it is as it is emotional support for politically distraught wine moms who just have to pray to something that Trump will be taken down and they've chosen to pray to the FBI. And I I hate to break it to you, but the FBI is not on your side. No, not at all. They're they're more than they're more than happy to subvert actual popular power, which is part of why this is so aggravating is because they do this hashtag resistance bullshit where they go, "Oh man, we you know, I sure hope the FBI can save us. I sure hope that I sure hope that the that the institutions of power can save can save us. And I think that that's that's the thing about Trump. He's the bare naked face of American imperialism. He's not a break in the system. He's not a brand new awful thing. Yes, some certain things about him are especially awful, but he very much represents existing oppression and existing institutions of 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 problematic power and American imperialism. He's not new as far as that goes. And I think that's really part of why the Democrats are so ineffective in combating Trump, because they're not really seeking to change any of his underlying policies. I mean, obviously they oppose stupid things like the wall or his prohibitions on like transgender people being in the military. But fundamentally, they still support the American imperial state. They still support you know, not addressing uh, racial inequality in a real material fashion what a lot of middle-aged and older Democrats and middle-class and upper-class uh, Democrats are interested in, they're not, they don't want to get rid of Trump because Trump is doing bad things. They want to get rid of Trump because Trump is saying bad things and is saying things, he's being uncouth, he's being uncivil, he's making America and the office of the presidency look bad. And so that's really what they're actually concerned about. And you can see this in the sort of adulation giving to Democratic ghouls like Nancy Pelosi. Mm. Um, a story that has been going around on Twitter recently is some, I'm not even going to name him, some lame, low-level Democratic politico raised $60,000, 60 grand, to buy 12,500 roses and deliver them to Nancy Pelosi's office. Wow. What the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, what the fuck? I that's the thing. It's just this like it's just this circle jerk mutual masturbation bullshit that they just they just have to do. They have to know that they have the moral ground because that's all that they have. If they were actually resisting, if they were actually seeking to subvert power, I guarantee you there'd be new, be newsletters from them about joining the SRA, about joining <laughs> 
or any other like so- socialist organization or any other popula- populist organization. That's the thing. It's like they have to get you to hate this administration but not the government. They have to get you to look at this administration as particularly bad and not the entire institution as bad. Because if they were actually talking about subverting Trump's power, they would be talking about subverting the government itself, which is something that they, that they can't do. And that's why you can't trust this hashtag resistance. Even challenging the legitimacy of the American state aside, which I can understand a lot of liberals are not on board with, you know, they're not leftists, we can't expect that of them. But even then, the Democratic Party seems especially egregious in the way that it handles things like uh, green energy and climate change activism. Recently, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made her push for the Green New Deal and for the creation of a committee with legislative drafting authority to push forward legislation to create new green energy sector jobs and to make a more rapid transition away from fossil fuels. It was actually an extremely moderate proposal. It would obviously would require some investment of taxpayer money or borrowing in order to fund, but the economic returns of such a program would be obvious. And considering the fact that we only have 12 years and likely less to prevent a one and a half degree Celsius rise in the Earth's average temperature, which would be fairly disastrous, you know, even though this is a fairly moderate proposal from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the uh, Democratic Party reacted to it like she was like like she was insane like she was some kind of like 1917 october revolution yeah like maniac <laughs> they uh they they responded to it by creating essentially reviving a committee from the 1980s to be the house body on climate change a, a committee that has no legislative authority a committee that is basically a fact-finding operation within the house we don't need to find the facts about climate change we know the facts and the facts are that we're fucked unless we do something now (laughs) and the democrats aren't interested in doing something now because it's oh well that's that's too hard it's too expensive that's not how politics are done well maybe we shouldn't continue doing politics the way that they've been done for the past 50 years because the past 50 years have brought us to this mess trump is a direct result of 50 years of failed democratic and republican policy absolutely i i think this is this is the vital purpose that sra that sra serves and organizations like it serve because we know that that liberals and and the democrats the democratic establishment the republican establishment so much of the government is so focused on this incremental slow change that doesn't represent any actual institutional change they just want to hear these viewpoints so that they can slowly, maybe five to ten years from now, concede some of these points and be like, okay, yeah, like, see, like, we were we were on your side the whole time. This is exactly what happened with gay marriage. It's exactly what happened with every social concession that's happened in the United States for a very long time now. They just need to repackage it in a way that's profitable for them. Yeah, it's a process called recuperation, which a boring Frenchman named Guy Debord came up with in the late 60s. Basically, radical movements make the case for the need for radical change and then watered down and defanged versions of those ideas and oft- often also the aesthetics of those movements are co-opted 
by the establishment, are co-opted by liberal institutions in order to portray themselves as being on the side of the radicals when oftentimes they're diametrically opposed to them. Right. And that's exactly why SRA makes the kind of statements that it does, because we know that when it comes down to it, we're going to have to protect ourselves. We're going to have to empower ourselves and protect each other because the establishment simply won't do it. They need to find changes that they're comfortable with and changes that take a long time. And time is, uh, is a rapidly evaporating luxury. Exactly. And, you know, sort of expanding on the topic of guns and community defense. Recently, Senator Dianne Feinstein proposed a bill called the Assault Weapons Ban of 2019, which is a reformulation and expansion of the same assault weapons ban that uh, she's been promoting for the past decade which is itself a reworked version of the Assault Weapons Ban of 1996. Basically, this bill is an attempt to ban um, most popular kinds of semi-automatic rifles through the targeting of specific features, for instance, pistol grips, flash hiders, muzzle brakes, inline stocks. Basically, it's basically an attempt to ban the form factor of an AR-15 or other modern semi-automatic rifle without having to list each individual one by name. There's this uh, current iteration of the bill also has some new language, which seeks to ban the creation of AR pistols, which it regards as a loophole in the NFA, which arguably true. But basically the idea is to ban semi-automatic rifles as a class of weapons by targeting specific features. The intent is by removing these guns from our society, these military-style assault weapons that will be able to reduce the number of casualties from school shootings and that school shootings won't happen as often. That is such a plastic straws liberal solution to to (laughs) to the problem. Especially because it's not even banning the weapons that are already in civilian hands. It's just banning the sale of new semi-automatic rifles, new quote, assault assault weapons. So keep in mind that the AR-15 is the most popular firearm in America by a substantial margin. There are something on the order of 30 to 40 million AR-15s in the U.S. out of the total 300 million guns currently in civilian hands. If, 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 someone, if someone is planning something problematic or something reactionary, with an assault weapon, there's a really important secret that I hope that most people listening to this podcast realize. They already fucking have those. They already fucking have the means of doing that. Yeah, right-wing crazies, right-wing preppers and white supremacists and neo-Nazis and all these unsavory figures already have massive arsenals of what this bill would consider assault weapons. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Once you have 40 million AR-15s in your society, banning the sale of a few more isn't really going to materially change things. What it is going to do is it's going to prevent potentially new groups of gun owners like Black Americans and immigrants and queer people. It might prevent people like that from acquiring firearms for self and community defense, which may may become important because if you haven't noticed, there's kind of been a spike in hate crimes recently. And mm-hmm. we kind of have a new fascist movement in this country. And we kind of have a fascist president who supports those fascists. And if this goes on, well, I don't want to be the one to have to say it, but there might come a point where 
we wish we had AR-15s and banning them through legislation like this. You know, all the other arguments aside, if nothing else, it's extremely short-sighted given our current political situation. Absolutely. And that's the thing about this right-wing gun culture that they've kind of cultivated. In a lot of ways, it's very smart because how armed the right-wing working class is directly translates to ideological power that they are currently flexing. They're currently flexing that right-wing ideological power to shift the Overton window as far to the right as possible, wherein hate crimes now seem like a viable option. You know, hate speech by people who are openly running for office is completely inconsequential because the liberal reaction is still like, oh man, I can't believe that he said something like that. It's not, this is how you protect your community when these fuckers come for you. Like, this is how you protect the people that you love from being wiped out by a, by a right-wing government like this. They're not interested in that because they know that those guns will likely be used against them as well if they start to do and say problematic things, if they need to resort to the fascist savior of, ca of capitalism. This is why there, it's so vital and so important that there be a left-wing gun culture as well because the right often has a monopoly on violence and the left needs that same ideological protection or else will be, will be gutted and wiped out. I also think it's worth bringing attention to the fact that bills like these always target civilian gun ownership with the assumption that civilian crimes with these weapons are the most important problem. But I think it's also important to consider how many violent gun crimes are committed and protected by the state. How many of these crimes are committed by law enforcement officers? Mm -hmm. With the tremendous militarization of the police in recent years, as we saw in Ferguson and in pretty much every large-scale police action since, so many armored vehicles have been transferred from the U.S. military to, you know, city, state, and even federal law enforcement agencies. In addition to vehicles, these law enforcement entities have also received weapons, armor, tactical gear. Oftentimes, you'll see police uh, at protests dressed up in a full tech. They look like they're in Fallujah rather than Boston <laughs> or, or, or Georgia or wherever. And oftentimes, these soldiers who patrol our streets, more or less, often are carrying better equipment than the actual soldiers we have in the field in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. And obviously, of course, as white Americans have only recently become aware, but as black Americans have known for decades, mm. the police murder people of color with near impunity in this mm. country. Only in the last couple of years have we even seen one or two officers go down for the murder of unarmed black men. Why are we okay with allowing these police to own weapons of war, assault weapons, when they so often use them to commit crimes? You can claim that these are a, it's only a small percentage of cops, a handful of bad apples, but our system protects these bad apples. The shooting of Daniel Shaver, where a man on his hands and knees was executed by a cop with an AR-15, because while playing a game of Simon Says with the cops, he had the audacity to reach up and try and pull up his pants. This sort of thing has been happening for decades, and people are only now becoming aware of it due to the spread of social media and cameras with phones in them. We have this system where the police are armed with military equipment, where they can go out and police communities of minorities, of immigrants, where they can police these communities that they have power over and execute people 
almost without consequences on the slightest provocation just by saying that they feared for their life. Why is it that those murders are not seen as important? Why do we continue to fund the militarization of the police? Why do we continue to allow the proliferation of SWAT tactics, of no-knock raids? Why do we allow SWAT teams to operate as riot control police and firing tear gas canisters directly into crowds like happened at Portland? Why is this sort of thing tolerated and seen as normal? Why are we only scared by school shootings and mass shootings? Obviously those events are terrible, but terrible events like that happen all the time under the color of state legitimacy. Why do we only focus on the shootings that affect, say, the children of bourgeois white people rather than the regular killings of black people? Why is that our legislative priority? Well. That's the thing, this, uh, this Simon Says that you mentioned, it's the exact obedience and robbing of power that the police immediately expect you to have upon their arrival. Pulling up his fucking pants. He was drunk, if I recall correctly. He was, um, he'd been at the bar drinking, he met a couple, talked to them, they went up, they had a conversation, he mentioned that he was in pest control and that he had an air rifle. And the couple asked to come up to his room to see it. And he took them upstairs to his room and he showed them the air rifle. And some lady across the street saw him through the hotel window holding an air rifle, thought it was a real gun, and called the cops, saying that there was a man with a gun in a hotel. And they immediately showed up, DEFCON 1, rifles loaded, safeties off, and immediately held this man at gunpoint and executed him for no crime at all. But you know, all this stuff about the police, which we could talk about for days, all of this aside, legislation like the assault weapons ban doesn't really address the root of the problem. Because while having access to guns certainly allows people to inflict violence, the fact that people want to inflict violence on others should be concerning on its own. Why do we focus so much on removing the tools that people commit these crimes with rather than addressing the factors that drive them to crime in the first place? I think that neoliberal capitalism and the Democratic Party in particular, neoliberals like the idea of basing their decisions on data, which is great because knowing the facts, knowing data is a great way to make sure that you're operating in accordance with reality. But operating with data alone can in many ways put you in as much a fictional reality as pure ideology can because focusing only on data means that you focus only on things that are measurable that are quantifiable so for instance we might say okay wow there's a lot of people committing suicide with guns how can we address this they might say okay well we know that there are x number of people suffering from anxiety and depression well, obviously, we need to do something to reduce the number of people suffering from anxiety and depression. So what helps with anxiety and depression? I know, mental health care. So we'll just say that if we want to reduce the rate of suicide, we take away their guns so that they can't do it, and then we get them mental health care and everything will be fine. That sounds great, but why do we have so many depressed and anxious people to begin with? Why do we have this epidemic of these specific mental illnesses. Something like 40% of American adults live with depression. Many other countries don't have that same sort of statistic. And throughout history, it seems kind of ridiculous to imply that 40% of all people who've ever lived have suffered from depression. So why do Americans and you know countries like the UK and Australia, why do they in particular suffer from high rates of depression? What are the factors that cause this? Well, I can tell you why I'm depressed. Um, it's called rent. 
Yep. It's, it's economic precarity. It's economic stress. It's being under the strain of, of having to work yourself to the bone, spending hours a day at a job that you very likely don't enjoy just to get enough money to pay for the bare essentials. And if you lose that job and you don't have family to support you, you run the risk of becoming homeless. We put American citizens, we put the working class in such a position of stress that it's no wonder that people become depressed and anxious. So giving someone who's anxious about rent, who's depressed about their economic situation, giving them a therapist to talk to now and then isn't really going to address the problem. And taking away their gun, well, it might stop them from shooting themselves, but it isn't going to stop them from wanting to kill themselves. Someone killing themselves is a tragedy, but I think it's just as much a tragedy to have a bunch of people walking around wishing that they could kill themselves, having that feeling of emptiness and isolation and alienation that neoliberal capitalism generates. Taking this sort of data-driven approach and looking only at what's quantifiable can often prevent you from questioning your own underlying ideological assumptions. And that's something that I think Democrats in particular are very bad at. Obviously, Republicans are a whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's things like the assault weapons ban and other sort of liberal approaches to solving gun violence. They're very much focused on the ephemeral surface aspects that can be directly measured rather than the underlying social and economic causes that lead to this sort of violence in the first place. Absolutely. And that's the interesting thing when looking at data. You can look at plenty of data and draw completely the wrong conclusion from it. For example, right-wing people love to bring up gun violence in, in inner cities and stuff like that. They use it to legitimize an incredibly racist, awful worldview. But it's interesting that they almost always bring it up when they're debating liberals about gun control, because when it comes down to it, liberals are fairly uninterested in the reasons why gun violence is so high in inner city communities. They bring it up for good reason because they know that a lot of liberals just aren't thinking about that and aren't they, they draw completely the wrong conclusion, both sides tend to, but they aren't interested in addressing the actual problem. They're not interested in addressing why those things happened and it's interesting that the right almost always calls attention to it yeah and the right obviously they use it for dog whistles like gang violence mm -hmm. i think it's worth bringing up how pseudo-scientific and racist much of the actual law enforcement approach to gang violence is oftentimes gang affiliation can be attributed to someone for something as simple as wearing a colored ball cap i mean obviously gangs can use these things as symbols and as signals of their alignment but this sort of thing, even being loosely affiliated with a person who was affiliated with a gang in the past, can have someone be tagged as a gang activity suspect. This sort of racist policing practice allows institutions like the Chicago Police Department to label 60% of an entire neighborhood as being a gang neighborhood, and any and all violence that takes place in that neighborhood is attributed to gangs, whether it's actually related to the gang organization or not, because of the simple fact that if you're a black man and you're wearing a blue baseball cap, well, obviously you must be in a gang. Yeah, and... If you, if you want any perspective on how good people are at identifying gang members, just take a brief perusal of just the the things that the police have been called for on, on black people in the last year or so. Just just look at nextdoor.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, there's some man walking around with a with a clipboard. He he must be part of some some clipboard gang. He he's He's clearly taking notes on people's homes so that he can invade them later. 
It's 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 absolutely absurd. Or that woman like not letting not letting that guy into her apartment building because she assumed that he was there for some nefarious reason and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, obviously, the real cause of a lot of violence in inner cities is poverty. Like mm-hmm. directly, the problem is poverty. Poverty drives people to crime. It poverty drives people to violence. It makes them desperate. It makes them desperate for any path out of their situation. And it makes it more difficult for people to approach a situation in a nonviolent way because they, they're stressed out all the time, constantly. And you know, the solution to that that's silently endorsed by many liberals is the increase of policing in those sorts of neighborhoods. Chicago mm-hmm. PD again strongly over polices southern chicago so rather than addressing the economic situation of those neighborhoods and investing in them and perhaps even giving direct aid and reparation to those individuals who've likely been are in their situation because of a series of racist decisions because of slavery because of jim crow because of redlining because of white flight rather than addressing the root cause the solution is often just to add more police and spend more money on policing and make the gang task force stronger when all you're really doing is you're putting another stressor into these people's lives and you're making the state a direct enemy of the people of that neighborhood which is kind of (laughs) yeah exactly they sure tend to be what it is is it's the sharpest point of the contradictions of american capitalism made manifest in these over-policed gang-ridden supposedly violent neighborhoods these people aren't violent because they're inherently violent refusing to view inner city violence through the lens of economic situations and poverty refusing to view it through that lens means that the only alternative view uh, the only alternative explanation for why these people are arrested so often for violent crimes the only other lens you can view it through is the lens that there is something about those people that makes them more violent and that is where racism comes from more or less if you don't have the ideological grounding to understand things in a systemic fashion then you're going to assign it to personal responsibility and if you have a group of people with characteristics in similar that behave in similar ways and you don't understand the systems that drive them to, to behaving in those ways poverty and racism then you're going to attribute it to attributes and characteristics of that group as a whole and that's honestly one of the main reasons why police are so racist. Yeah, and the very interesting thing about this is that the, the structure that's currently in power is dependent on segregated wage slavery and on slavery itself with, the, with labor in prisons and stuff like that. They, it, it goes beyond ignorance. It goes beyond they're not paying attention to that. They're ignoring that or whatever. That's that's exactly what it is. They're deliberately ignoring it because they know that their profits depend on on the subjugation of of the working class, especially working class people of color, because they can prey off of this ideological perception. They can prey off of white people calling the calling the cops on people who are just minding their own fucking business. They can prey off of that and put them into that system almost immediately and profit off of their labor. And it's it's just interesting to me that the the, ide- the ideology of racism that's that's spoon-fed to people just serves to to empower and enforce the existing profit structure that that this economy has has created. You know, they're they're dependent on ignoring the actual causes of poverty and crime. So that's why Democrats uh, propose and pass bills like the assault weapons ban that Feinstein has put forward 
because it gives the appearance of addressing the problem of gun violence without actually addressing the underlying factors, and it addresses only the most visible and shocking form of gun violence, mass shootings and school shootings, rather than addressing the much more common forms of gun violence, of uh, interpersonal conflict, of crime, and of suicide. And that is what Democrats do, the Democratic Party. It focuses on giving the appearance of radical change. It focuses on the appearance of solving society's problems without actually questioning the underlying capitalist ideology that has created these problems in the first place. And Faye's absolutely right that she pointed out earlier that a lot of people only really started to care about this once this started affecting white communities. It was very, it was very interesting. I got a few perspectives on this that they were saying, can you believe that school children are afraid of are afraid of gun violence and a lot of people reacted as in like do you mean every fucking day in the neighborhood i grew up in do you mean like my day-to-day existence growing growing up as a kid in one of those neighborhoods here's a statistic for you there were 998 people shot and killed by the police last year whereas since 1970 397 people have been shot in school shootings And that statistic includes everything from elementary school up through college, and it also includes shootings that happened while school was out. And it's not just mass shootings, it's all shootings total, even if it was just one individual. Two and a half times as many people were killed by police last year than in all school shootings in the last 50 years. And, you know, if you can't see the disparity in the sort of scale of those problems, then I think you have to have blinders on. Obviously, this is a problem. So what is the solution? Well, I think you can... Well, I mean, you know what you know what my solution is. Mm. Uh, it involves a lot of red flags and uh, old-timey music, but uh, the, the solution really is to address the underlying economic problems directly. What can you do to eliminate poverty and economic precarity? Well, you can imp- implement universal socialized healthcare, single payer healthcare that covers every single person in the country and is free at point of service. You can, I don't know, maybe allow uh, for the formation of tenants unions, which can buy out apartment complexes from underneath of scummy landlords. You can eliminate food deserts by making sure that there are rather than uh, opening grocery stores solely on the basis of whether or not they're profitable, you can put grocery stores where they're needed so that people can buy the food that they need to survive. Yeah, those stores might end up being subsidized by stores in wealthier neighborhoods, but guess what? That's what our society is about. That's how our society functions, is by people who have more providing for people who have less. And honestly, I think that maybe we shouldn't have people who have more and just make sure everyone has what they need but if mm-hmm. we are in if we are in, within the context of this capitalist system at the very least we can push for reforms to eliminate violence we can push for reforms to eliminate poverty surely liberals can get on board with that surely liberals have never stood in the way of beneficial social changes even when they didn't actually threaten the basis of capitalism oh no definitely not you can totally rely on liberals in 2020 they'll really deliver on all those promises they made oh definitely but All that aside, we can rag on the liberals all we want, but on the other hand, the alternative are the actual fascists in the Republican Party. So vote or don't vote, but if you do vote, don't vote for them. 
Absolutely not. <laughs> they might they might be pro gun, but they're anti your existence. So. Yes. <laughs> well, I think that should about cover it on domestic news for the time being. For now, I think maybe we'll turn the subject towards actual firearms in general. All right. So I've been somewhat out of the out of the gun game for a little while, you know, because I was just a I was a good old college liberal and stuff, and I thought that the police would definitely save me. How do I, as a leftist, go about getting a gun? Okay, so the first place to start is, what exactly do you want the gun for? What is your intent? Are you looking for for something to conceal carry? Are you looking for something that you can use to defend your home? Are you looking for something that's, you know, maybe a bit more recreational in terms of, you know, long-range shooting or sport shooting, or are you maybe looking for something that's more of a hunting-style weapon? So the first question would always be, what specifically are you looking to use your gun for? Right, so let's say that, let's say that our, our current economy has been working its magic on me, and I don't have, I don't have a lot of funds, so the idea of an all-encompassing gun uh, would would be somewhat appealing. Something that I can hunt with, something that I can protect my home with, something that I can enjoyably recreationally shoot with. What, what, what would be your recommendation? So there's a couple options there. The main two that I would point to would be either a 22 caliber rifle or a 12 gauge shotgun. So for a 22 rifle, um, the most common recommendation would be something like a Ruger 10-22. It's a semi-automatic rifle with a 10-round magazine. Obviously, the ammunition that it shoots, 22 LR, is... It used to be dirt cheap. It's gone up in price a bit these days, but it's still extremely affordable. If you're short on cash, you can still buy a box of 500 rounds of 22 for less than you would pay for 100 rounds of 9mm. So it's very economical in that regard. It's... Uh, 22s are usable for hunting small game. They're, you know, they can be used for, you know, turkey hunting, for instance, although not for flying birds, usually. As far as home defense, though, 22s often come up a, a bit short. 22 out of a rifle, it will probably stop an attacker, but it's not a guarantee the way a heavier round might be. So it's not something that I would want to rely on uh, to save my life. So if you're more concerned about home defense specifically and you're willing to spend a little bit more than you would for a 1022 the next option would be a shotgun now a lot of people have misconceptions about shotguns they think that shotguns necessarily have terrible punishing recoil or they think that um shotgun shotgun spread is ridiculous they they've played <laughs> video games and they think that you know shotguns will you know, shotgun blast will spread five feet in the length of a room and well that's not really the case so, yeah, as I as I understand it, it's a forty-five degree angle oh, <laughs> from yeah. uh, from the front of the gun, right? Yeah, it's more of a blunderbuss. That's that's what I learned from playing Doom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, in reality, uh, shotgun spread is usually very mild. It's usually in ten yards, which would be about the length of a large room. A shot a shotgun blast will usually spread to maybe a bit larger than a fist, depending on the ammunition used. So obviously, shotguns still need to be aimed, but. You know, the benefit of a shotgun is that you can get a reasonably effective firearm for very cheap. Guns like the Maverick 88 or the Maverick 88 or the H&R Partner Pump are very affordable and reasonably high quality 12 gauge pump action shotguns that can be had for often as little as $200. And these are very good weapons for home defense. If you load them with the right ammunition, they can 
very easily stop an attacker in one shot reliably. However, shotguns aren't always the best option either, although you can get low recoil loads. I, My personal recommendation for a home defense uh, shotgun shell would be the Federal Tactical Premium Buckshot, which is reduced recoil and reduced power overall, which also reduces the risk of bullets passing through, of pellets passing through walls. Although you can mitigate recoil, shotguns are still large, heavy weapons that require a fair amount of manual dexterity to operate. And it's very easy, for instance, for an inexperienced shooter to to not fully rack the slide, a so-called short stroke, and that can cause the shotgun to jam up, which is the last thing that you want in a home defense scenario. So at the very low end of the price range, the other alternative for a cost-effective firearm would be a high-point 9mm pistol. They have a reputation for being crappy guns, and they are, but it's a 9mm pistol that you can get for $150, and 99% of the time when you pull the trigger, it'll go bang. That's not ideal, but if a shotgun doesn't fit your needs, and you need more power than a 22 rifle can provide, then a as far as cheap 9mm handguns go, you could certainly do worse than a high point. So let's say that I do settle on a handgun. What do I need to be concerned about or aware of or how difficult would it be for me as as a leftist and as a political activist to go about getting a, a concealed carry permit getting getting all of my permits in place for a place like california that does have stricter gun laws so california in particular is a massive pain there isn't really a permit per se but you do need to get a firearm safety certificate card uh, you can usually do this at the guns at the gun shop. You know, you go in and you basically answer a 30-question multiple-choice test on basic gun safety and operation to demonstrate that you are sane and know something about firearms. Usually, this will be issued to you, and you can get it a couple weeks later, a laminated card. This is what you would present to, along with your ID, to buy a gun in the state of California. In addition to that, of course, there's also the federal form 4473, which is basically uh, the record of the gun transaction through the federal federally licensed firearms dealer. And this is something that needs to be done for every state. And essentially, you go through that and you swear that you are not a terrorist, that you're not a drug addict, that you're not a felon, etc., that you are legally allowed and legally competent to own a gun. Please note that lying on this form is itself a felony. It would be perjury. So don't lie on that form if you if you are a terrorist. That's You'll get a couple extra years on your jail sentence for lying on your form 4473. So in California, you can usually buy long, what's called long arms rifles and shotguns without any further permitting beyond that. However, handguns um, and what California considers assault weapons you would need to fill out additional paperwork to register those firearms with the state. And of course, California also has waiting periods, so that once you buy your firearm, you then need to leave and come back 10 days later to pick it up. And also, a recent change to the law, which took effect January 1st of 2019, is that you now need a license to purchase ammunition, which requires the federal background check on you and needs to be renewed every two years. And also, there's a background check performed every single time you buy ammunition uh, at a charge of $1. Uh, you can no longer have ammunition shipped to your home from online, which is annoying because it's expensive. As far as assault weapons, 
Uh, if you want to own an AR-15 in California or other semi-automatic rifles, there are ways to do it. There are loopholes and workarounds and alternative firearms that you can own. Too much to go into now, but generally that's the process for California. Conservative states will generally be much easier. Other states like New York or New Jersey might be substantially harder. So it really depends on your exact state. And I imagine my uh, my local SRA chapter could help me through that that process. Absolutely. If there's an experienced uh, gun owner in your chapter, they should be familiar with all local firearms laws, and they can walk you through the process. That's one of the things that the SRA is here to do, is we want to put experienced leftist gun owners in touch with people who are less experienced so that they can help them through the process, however simple or complicated it may be in their particular jurisdiction. Is the process for registering a firearm difficult? Because... You know, let's say I have a a grandpa or whatever, and he gave me one of his old, old guns that may or may not be registered. How do you uh, how do you go about doing that? So registering a firearm is relatively simple. Again, in California, only assault weapons and handguns need to be registered. Uh, standard long arms do not. Although there is an optional registry for long arms if you really want the state to know that you own a rifle. The process can be done online, or you can do it through snail mail. As for checking to see if a gun is registered, that's a bit more of a complicated process. All right, so let's say that I want to get a concealed carry permit. What's what's that process like? So in some states, they have what's called constitutional carry, which means that every single person who is a resident of that state is allowed by the constitution of that state to carry a concealed firearm. Uh, I know that Vermont has this, a few other states do. More typically, you will require some sort of permit for concealed carry. So in that case, usually there will be a form that you have to submit to the local sheriff or law enforcement chief officer, and you will have to undergo some sort of testing to verify that you are competent with the firearms, uh, with, a, with a pistol. Oftentimes there'll be a mandatory class on the laws surrounding concealed carry and legal use of firearms for self-defense. Sometimes these classes will include a shooting portion that you have to get a certain score on to show that you're competent. Usually after completing that sort of program and submitting the paperwork, you will then receive a permit for concealed carry. Now, you won't always receive a permit for concealed carry because there's a distinction which the firearms community has made between what are called shall issue and may issue uh, jurisdictions. So in a shall issue jurisdiction, if you undergo the process, if you take the class pass the test, submit the correct paperwork, and you're not a criminal and there's no no legal reason to prevent you from carrying a concealed weapon, the local law enforcement agency has to issue you a permit because you met the legal requirements. However, some jurisdictions, especially in many liberal states, are what are called may issue jurisdictions. So they can choose to issue or not issue a permit based on their own arbitrary criteria, which are usually hidden and are not subject to public scrutiny. So California is a May issue state, and uh, issuance of concealed carry permits is determined at a county level. So we're here near the east edge of LA County, and if we lived one mile west of the county line and we wanted to get a concealed carry permit, you could take the test, fill out the paperwork, submit everything to the 
you know, Los Angeles County Sheriff, and the sheriff would then very likely send you a not very polite rejection letter telling you to go pound sand because Los Angeles does not issue concealed carry permits to anyone except wealthy business developers, celebrities, and celebrities' bodyguards. And politicians and politicians' bodyguards. The bourgeoisie, more or less. However, if you go a mile east of the county line into San Bernardino County and apply for a concealed carry permit, you will almost certainly receive it because the sheriff of San Bernardino County issues permits to anyone who applies to it. So really, your odds of getting a concealed carry permit really come down to your zip code. You know, it can often be a very obscure and undemocratic decision whether or not you get one. So that's... That's the unfortunate truth of it. Even if you follow the law to the letter and do everything the way you're supposed to, you may still not be able to get a concealed carry permit in some places like Los Angeles and most of the rest of coastal California. So um, the last thing I would say is that if you do want to conceal carry a pistol, don't conceal carry a high point. That is the, the high point is a very cheap pistol, but it is not suitable for concealed carry. It's very large, very bulky, very heavy, and uh, it's not exceedingly reliable. So for concealed carry, typically I would recommend something like a compact 9mm or 380 semi-automatic pistol. You know, you get models like the LCP or the LC380, which is the California legal model. You know, you can get small, what are called J-frame Smith & Wesson revolvers in 38 Special. You know, you can get slightly larger guns like the Glock 34 and 9mm. Generally, for a good concealed carry gun, you're going to be looking at a minimum of $350 to $500 to get one that's both reliable and comfortable to carry. So if you do want to pursue getting a concealed carry license and carrying a gun, be aware that it is a significant money investment to be able to do, to do so, in addition to all the uh, filing fees that most states and most jurisdictions require to get the permit. So since the right has kind of a foothold, or a, a total foothold, I should say, in, in gun culture, what if I want to go to a gun shop and look at things? How do I know I'm not going to be bullied for my politics? Is there some kind of list of safe gun shops or, or safe spaces for that kind of thing? So the SRA is actually working on a project to compile a list of safe and unsafe gun stores, gun ranges, and other institutions. We are taking essentially member reports of the environment and staff at, at various gun ranges or gun stores, if they are particularly disrespectful or even threatening towards leftists or towards queer people or black people, then we would obviously list them as an, an unfriendly establishment that should be avoided at all costs. On the other hand, if it's a welcoming range that they may not be leftists, but they certainly don't have anything against us, then we would mark them as a relatively safe place to go. I would also say that for people who are visibly of a minority, people of color, black people, indigenous people, queer people who are visibly queer. If you're worried about harassment at a gun shop or gun range, the best way to handle it is to go in a group with other uh, SRA members, especially if there are white people in that group to act as shields, essentially to, you know, stand between you and people who might denigrate you, who can stand up and speak on your behalf. And obviously, if, if someone gives you shit at an institution like that, leave and don't go back. Don't give your money to reactionaries. Fortunately, that mean that might mean that you might not be able to take advantage of, you know, a gun store with, you know, the best prices. You may not be able to go to the range with the best facilities, but obviously the safety of, you know, SRA members and leftists and minority shooters in general is of the utmost importance. So if it's not a safe environment, 
don't shoot there. But if you have to, then definitely go in a group with someone who's more experienced who will have your back. All right, so at this point, we're going to take a brief intermission before coming back for an interview with our new editor. So in the meantime, please enjoy this nice electronic track by a trans comrade named Kenku. We're back now with an interview with another uh, member of the SRA and our new editor and producer, Ed. How are you doing? It's uh, great. It's great to be here. So today I'd like to interview you uh, about your experience as a Mexican immigrant living in Trump's America, the development of your politics and your change in your attitude towards, towards guns over the past several years. Um, I guess chronological would be the best way to start. Let's see. Uh, as Faye stated, I was born in uh, Mexico. I lived in Mexico City for most of my childhood and moved to the U.S. At around, in around 2000, the year 2000. Um, I moved around in Southern California for a bit. Uh, I started uh, life here in one of the more working-class areas in, in Southern California, a, a town that overlooked a more bougie town. And I remember as a kid moving in being kind of jealous of all the the bougie kids living in the really nice houses because the area we lived in was kind of um lower class my parents actually ended up having to get some relatives to lie for us to have me go to a bougie school district instead that just sort of amplified the the whole uh jealousy i felt i guess however like i have to think i'm thinking about it like throughout most of my life i guess i was more of a 
I'm conservative <laughs> in a sense. I used to hang around with a lot of um, conservative folks and to the point where I, I guess you could say that I was a bit whitewashed. I started, I guess, moving more left the more I uh, came to realization that I was, I guess, I'm, I'm part of, I'm a, I'm pansexual. So I, I, during that realization of the fact that I'm part of the LGBTQ community, I started like leaning more and more left. It was through college. It was through my education. Um, I studied. At first, I studied film and TV production. Um, then I went back to college for a science field, biochemistry. And it was through the study of that, like learning more about physics, how energy, the transfer of energy works, that I started thinking more more along the lines of uh, how capitalism is just abusing the limited resources we have on Earth. How did your understanding of physics and chemistry and biology, how did that inform your leftist politics? <laughs> uh, and it's, it does seem kind of a, a bit of a leap, but uh, the more you go into, and keep in mind, I didn't really even like graduate with any of those degrees. I just like took a few elementary like elementary courses in it. But just the very basic understanding of a concept that I have heard some, I can't remember the name of the biologist, but he's a... Um, that he calls ancient sunlight uh, in regards to oil, which is basically the idea that the current oil reserves that we're using right now are a product of sunlight that arrived on Earth millions of years ago. And so once we've run out of these reserves, that's it. We don't have anything else to replace it with. I used to sort of believe, like most liberals, in the idea that us as individuals were the most, the heaviest contributors to carbon emissions, but new data has shown me the error of that <laughs> judgment. But yeah, it was it, my, I guess my dive into left-leaning politics started with that, just the realization that um, American corporations were using more than their fair share of this ancient sunlight that we have very limited um, resources for. How did your politics develop in reaction to the 2016 election and the, uh, well, everything that surrounded that? <laughs> um, it's, I, I don't know why I left right there, because it's actually, like, rather scary. Um, I was generally uh, one of the people who wanted to see the best in everybody. Um, I believed that human beings were... At their core, not particularly good or bad, but that if you know you got to know somebody well, you could find a humanity in in them. But the idea was that I used to believe that most of my Republican friends or most of my more conservative friends were not bad people; that they just had a different belief in economic systems than I did. And when it came right down to it, they would they would not prove as uh, I don't want to say bigoted, but that's the only word that comes into my, that comes into mind. So I had in mind that well, they're just decent people who have a different belief set than me. So when Trump ran for presidency, I I just sort of assumed that none of the people that I associated with who were like more right wing people would not go along with that whatsoever. I was wrong. <laughs> so. It's having that realization, like, just, I guess having that reality shatter, the reality of, you know, my view of people and the reality of what they voted for, as in they didn't care that this person was so aggressively against minorities 
that all they cared about was whether it's economics or I have some people in my life who were literally one issue, one single issue voter who have stated, I don't care if it turns out that he had sexual relations with a minor. I just care that he's anti-abortion. And that's the reason they voted for him. So that sort of, that was the first step in dispelling the idea of <laughs> liberal optimism. Yeah, I suppose that was that. Um, and in the wake of everything that happened in Charlottesville, every major, I guess, Nazi rally, for lack of a better word, that like that happened just drove me more and more left, just realizing I can't just sit here and hope that these people are going to come to their senses. I don't know if they can. <laughs> I guess that sounds rather judgmental, but at this point, I feel like it's safer for me and for other people of color LGBTQ plus people to assume they're not going to their senses anytime soon. How do you feel about the Democratic Party and liberals today? It's kind of contentious. I'm 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 sure I'm gonna piss off some of the more left <laughs> left leaning people in the in the organization by saying SRA, this. SRA is a big tent, and we make room for everyone um, as long as you're anti-capitalist, anti-fascist, <laughs> and anti-bigotry, which uh, I know the two are. You know, you you can have some sympathy for liberals. I'm not going to throw you in the gulag. <laughs> um, well, okay, so the Democratic Party, um, right now I think they're our best hope for improving things. Um, and that's just because they happen to be the one, the party that's best positioned to counteract what the Republicans are doing. I came from a country who, even though I never voted in Mexico, I came from a country who had a multi-party system. And while I understand why people want the, um, but they want more viable choices as far as parties go, be- because I lived in Mexico for like the majority of my childhood. I kind of understand why having too many parties would actually be counter to that. The vote gets diluted, people don't back one candidate completely, and you still might end up with a precedent that nobody wants, or almost nobody wants, and that's just because the vote was diluted with almost everybody else. So I still think the recurrence are our best hope, but I think the best idea for right now is to just keep pushing them left as far as we can get them to go. I've, I've, I usually use the analogy of a um, seesaw here, um, or some sort of lever that's really, really close for, to going over one inch. If we want to keep things balanced, we have to push as hard as we can left. So I know that you used to be fairly anti-gun, but that your opinion on that has evolved over the years. Can you tell me how those opinions have progressed and why? Well, I used to believe that no one really should have guns except for the peacekeepers, or pigs as I not call them. (laughs) (laughs) But as I've started to see more and more uh, through the news, through people speaking out, how unjust that system is, how unjust law enforcement is in the United States, and how they pretty much just always go after minorities, I'm starting to lean more and more towards minorities need their own ways of protecting themselves because the more the more than likely thing that will happen is if you as a minority especially as a african-american if you call the cops because someone's trying to break into your house you're just as likely to get shot as the person trying to break into your house and 
that's that's not good. That you can't you can't expect a system that is actively willing to oppress you to protect you. Do you feel as a Mexican American as an immigrant, do you feel that you have been discriminated against by police or do you feel that's something that you you feel is likely? You know, I don't think I've ever had a particularly bad experience with police. Uh, I've had very limited experience with police, to be to be perfectly honest. Uh, I've been pulled over a couple times. I think the very first time that happened, I just never felt particularly unsafe. I have to admit, though, that's a privilege that I have. I have been frequently told that I look kind of Japanese or Filipino. And I suspect that that might play into some of the privileges that I've had. Uh, the, the, only, the only time where I feel like I was unjustly pulled over, I was driving a beat-up Aerostar van from, like, 1994, I think. And it was at dusk, and I was pulled over because I didn't have my headlights turned on, even though there was plenty of light still to be able to see. Nothing came of it, it was, but um, I guess that was the only time that ever happened. How do you feel about the crackdown on communities of undocumented immigrants, and how do you think that affects the uh, the Latinx community, at least in your experience in Southern California? Well, before answering that question, I have to admit that I am privileged uh, in the fact that I am a documented immigrant. That being said, it's hard to be an immigrant from Latin America of any kind in Southern California without being adjacent to communities of undocumented immigrants. So even though I was a documented immigrant and never specifically had any fears myself, a lot of people surrounding my community have been scared. I have definitely noticed increased fear amongst them, increased talk of uh, deportation, fear of traveling, fear of doing anything that would call attention towards them. What's the, attitor- what's the attitude towards firearms ownership in the uh, Mexican immigrant community? Um, it's, I cannot speak for the Mexican um, immigrant community in other states, but in California, um, thanks to a history of gang violence, um, it is commonly seen as a symbol that you are a violent person, or at the very least, a member of a gang. It's kind of looked down upon a little bit. If you happen to be an undocumented immigrant, it's going to be really hard for you to legally own a firearm. And just by default, that just makes you a criminal in the eyes of law enforcement. So it is viewed as um, essentially painting a target on your back one way or another. So then what solution does that leave for undocumented immigrants who are not able to call police for fear of deportation but also cannot legally own a firearm without putting themselves in more risk if they're discovered i it's it's hard to to tell honestly i that's not a conversation i've had with people what they do uh if in case of someone's trying to break in um it's improvised weapons i guess is the only thing they would do but Generally, they have no recourse. <laughs> they try to rely on each other for, like, help, survival. In a sense, it brings communities closer, but at the same time, it's scary to have nothing to fall back on for self-defense. What do you think that leftists, that the socialist and anarchist community can do to, you know, reach out more to undocumented immigrants and you know other people of latinx descent who might be in a vulnerable position what sort of things can us as a political movement do to to reach out and to build solidarity with these communities Hmm. well 
I'm going to say it's, a, it's an uphill battle. Propaganda in Latin American countries against socialism is actually pretty strong. In the late 90s, Mexican TV and Mexican journalism had a pretty successful campaign of propaganda against the Zapatistas, the ZLN. Uh, they did a pretty good job at getting just the general public to be afraid of that movement. And that was just Mexico. I can imagine that any immigrant from Cuba would have, it even, would have even a stronger bias against it. So there's that issue. Not to mention the fact that a lot of Latin American communities are Catholic very heavily Catholic, and the Catholic Church in general has a very anti-socialist view, which is weird <laughs> if you think about it. But. Well, there are things, there are movements like liberation theology, which has been popular in many parts of Latin America, but uh, are you aware of any, any movements like that here in Southern California? I'm not very religious myself, so unfortunately I'm not particularly too close to that field. So, yeah, I'm not aware of any... Personally, I'm not aware of any uh, movements on liberation theology. That being said, even though I did say it's an uphill battle, there are ways to do it. Sadly, we kind of have to be careful about the use of the word socialism, because that's just a word that has a stigma around to it. The best way we can make allies is to try to help these communities in any way we can. Uh, One thing we are doing here in uh, SRALA is working with uh, tenants unions in trying to um, get fair housing for immigrant populations and do so without the attempt to, and I'm going to use this word, evangelize them. I think we can ironically learn a lot from uh, the evangelical Christian community here. They found that the more you try to go to somebody to preach, just to preach them, the more they reject you. So the idea is just to help. And through that help, if they ever ask you about things, well, yeah, obviously teach them. Yeah, the best way to reach out to these communities is just to be there to help. What would you like to see the SRA do more of in the future? Where do you think we can best direct our energies right now? I think mutual aid is where where we should focus on. Based on the current climate in the United States, I don't think gun rights are in any particular danger. It's ironic that we can rely on the Republicans for at least that. (laughs) But um, yeah, um, education definitely is one of them, but definitely mutual aid is what's going to get us there. As I mentioned before, it's um, helping people is what's going to set us apart from all the other uh, gun organizations that are just there for show. Or to protect their hobby rather than to directly help working class people to arm themselves and to right. prepare for those situations. Yeah. All right. And uh, as mentioned before, um, Ed is the producer and editor of this season of the Socialist Rifle Association podcast, as well as the uh, media and agitprop director for the SRA at large. So the last thing to bring up is what are your plans and intentions as far as the SRA podcast. Obviously, this is something that we've collaborated on, but what is the sort of direction that you see us taking? Well, a lot of people like the the old podcast, but obviously there was some problems with regards to the fact that it had the official SRA name, but... (laughs) It wasn't always about guns. Yeah, exactly. That being said, we don't necessarily want to go away from that, but what we're going to do is we're also going to want to add a section for organizational news. That way we can more efficiently communicate with the members and people outside the organization who are listening to the podcast, what we're working on, what we're planning on doing. Aside from that, leftist politics suffers from an image problem of being a white dude's club. (laughs) 
the epithet on Twitter of brochalist is uh, thrown around quite a lot. And I think that's not particularly accurate to how it is. So one of the things we're going to try to work on at the very least for this next couple of months is to hear from members of the SRA in disadvantaged, in disadvantaged communities or minority groups to try to add a little bit more of um, diversity to the voices being heard on the left. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to answer these questions. And uh, thank you very much for donating your time to help with editing and producing this show, which was much more work than I originally anticipated. (laughs) With that said, do you have any final comments? Solidaridad por siempre, camaradas. (laughs) Solidarity forever. Good night, everybody. Good night.